guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Qualcast Nation, welcome back. I am mad excited to bring you part two with Dr. Kirk Parsley. In this part, when we're talking sleep, we get down to some solutions, guys. And again, I know there's a ton of us that have sleep troubles, especially the shift workers out there. And this is my favorite part of this conversation with Kirk. We talk about how many hours of sleep do you need? Can you catch up on sleep? Is there a value of napping? You know, what? how should we handle sleep debt when we're shift workers? How do we approach these problems? And we also touch on supplements, on whether there's value there. And so Kirk throws down, as you know, super knowledgeable. And I got to tell you guys, I I don't know if I've gotten so many messages about an episode than part one with Kirk. So you know what? I'm excited for you guys to hear this. You guys are going to love it. I just also want to let you know that our Solving Healthcare shop has now been developed. So Solving Healthcare backslash shop, and you will see our awesome conferences that were that you may have missed on low carb and, and stress management and resilience, which I think, you know, going into the Christmas season, this is not a better time to, to dive into that. Use promo code QUADCAST20 and get 20% off. And so... Uh, Thanks for uh, checking that out. And all our merch is on there too, yo, for realsies. Okay, so without further ado, we're bringing back sleep expert, Dr. Kirk Parsley. Let's go. Yeah, I know. It's just a great point to to clarify, just because like even in our world in in critical care, when we've increased our sedation and we tell tell ourselves, so now they're getting that quality sleep. Right. We have no evidence that they're getting into any deep sleep. In fact, um, I think when we do the studies, it's in fact uh, consistent with not being in deep sleep. Um, right. And then getting to like the, some of the million dollar questions, because, you know, we have a lot of tons of people having issues with sleep. When it comes to either, we'll talk maybe about issues getting to sleep first, maybe, and then also um, people that are early risers or have trouble getting back to sleep. Any recommendations uh, for these guys, Kirk? Yeah, so when you when you talk about just generalized difficulty to sleep, so there, there uh, insomnia, the inability to get as much sleep as you want or you feel is adequate, right? Um, and insomnia is kind of broken up into three flavors. You have initiation insomnia, you have uh, maintenance insomnia, and terminal insomnia. So either you can't get to sleep or you get like maybe one sleep cycle, maybe two, and then you wake up, or you're getting maybe five to six hours of sleep, then you're waking up and there's just no going back to sleep. So that would be initiation, uh, maintenance and, and terminal insomnia. Um, most of the SEALs, as I said, they were, they were kind of somewhere between uh, maintenance and terminal insomnia because they were getting about four hours of sleep, which was technically only about two sleep cycles but then there was just no going back to sleep for them. Um, so there's different reasons for each one of those things, but the one reason that will bridge all of those is excess stress, stress hormones. So the first thing that I always try is decreasing stress hormones. And that requires you to have some way to manage your stress. Now around sleep, you have to have, uh, you basically need some sort of ritual that you're preparing yourself to sleep. As I said, our ancestors spent three hours, three and a half hours getting ready to go to sleep. We don't do that, right? 
we, we have sleep rituals for our kids, right? When we have young kids, there's a protracted sleep ritual to get a two-year-old to go to bed. You don't just throw them into bed and turn off the light, walk out the room and expect they're going to stay in there. Laughable to anybody who's ever been a parent, right? Um, you know that won't happen because you need that ritual. Well, we need that ritual as adults too. So you need some sort of ritual. And what I find most helpful for, uh, for adults to get a sleep schedule Basically, first, they have to value sleep. And then second, you need to manage the stress. And I have a PDF on my site. Uh, it, it's a free download that gives like elaborate instructions on what I'm going to try to cover really quickly here because it would take me about 30 minutes to describe it in detail. But basically, uh, you're going to set an alarm clock when it's time to start getting ready for sleep. And with and you when we with the help of the PDF, you'll be able to figure out like the timing of all these things when you do them and why. So you, there's going to be an alarm clock. They're going to have two alarm clocks in your life. You're going to have an alarm clock that wakes you up in the morning. You have an alarm clock that gets you, that says now it's time to start getting ready for sleep. And both of those alarm clocks are just as important. They're equal, they, right? They, you cannot distinguish one of those being more important than the other. They are exactly on par. You need this sleep ritual if you're going to get good sleep, if you're going to get value out of what sleep you're going to get, especially if you're going to get insufficient sleep. So you set an alarm clock, you have some sort of ritual that's slowing down your brain. So you have to decrease the blue light in your eyes and then you have to decrease your association with your environment. So you can't put on blue blocking glasses and sit at your computer and, you know, finish your charting or work on some sort of research project or some sort of presentation or something that's stressful. You can't sit there and activate your brain, revving your brain up, overpowering the GABA that's been secreted in your brain. You can't do that, right? The GABA is only going to be secreted if you decrease the blue light in your eyes, which I recommend doing that at least an hour before bed. You can do that with glasses and you can do that. Like there's all sorts of gadgets and filters for your computer and people know about all this stuff, I think. And there's light bulbs you can use and there's all sorts of things. Decrease the blue light in your eyes. Now you also have to slow your brain down and quit. Like don't watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre if you're watching movies or television or something. Like you watch something calming. You watch something preferably familiar that you don't even really care about the outcome, but maybe it's something pleasing that you've seen before and you're just going to like let it roll in the background if you need something to kind of distract you. Um, I, I recommend producing this list that's in the PDF. There's, there's sort of two lists, a to-do list and a to-worry list. And then you make yourself this pact that at, at let's say an hour after your alarm goes off, you get in bed, you do your sleep ritual and then you get in bed and then you lay in that bed until your other alarm goes off. And there's no negotiating that. And there's a lot of re there's a lot of arguments about this. I know other sleep scientists say different things, but here's, here's my argument for it. What we want to do is we want to decrease stress hormones. What did I tell you what deep sleep was? The absolute lowest stress hormones you'll ever have, which leads to the most anabolic time you'll ever have. So we want a sleep ritual that's going to decrease all your stress. You're going to get in bed and you're going to lay in bed and you're going to do breathing exercises, meditation, progressive muscle relaxation, whatever it is that cools you out. And you're going to lay there and you're going to focus on that. And if anything pops in your mind to worry about, you're not going to worry about it. You're not going to think about it because it's on your list and you've made yourself a pact that I'm going to worry about my list when I get up in the morning. When that alarm clock goes off, that's the most capable I'm ever going to be at handling my list. So that's when I'm going to handle my list. So if it pops in my head right now, nope, I'm going to focus on my breathing. I'm going to focus on relaxation. You will train yourself to fall asleep that way. If you wake up, you just do the same thing. You don't look at the clock. You don't need to look at the clock. It doesn't matter what time it is because your alarm clock hasn't gone off yet. So you don't look at the clock and you say, I'm awake, whatever. I need to get up and go pee. I get up and I go pee. I lay back down in bed and I'm going to start relaxing again. And I'm just going to breathe. And since I don't know what time it is, my alarm clock might be going off in 15 minutes. And if that happens, well, I got seven hours and 45 minutes of sleep and 15 minutes of meditation and now I'm ready to handle my day. But if my alarm clock's not going to go off for four hours, I guarantee I'm not going to lay there and meditate for four hours. I'm going to fall back asleep. The only time I'm not going to be able to fall back asleep is if I let that stuff on my list back in my head and I abandon my plan. It's like a fight plan. It's hard, man. You get in the ring and you get hit and all of a sudden it's like, well, that's not what I expected to happen. Maybe I should do something different than what I planned. Nope. Stick with the plan. Works every time. That is tremendous. As you know, you're going to hear a lot of, I've heard a lot of different theories in terms of what you should do, like say, 
like in terms of initiating sleep, that seems to be consistent. Get a routine, reduce your blue light. Um, when you wake up in the middle of the night to pee or whatever, you know, it's, or you're having trouble uh, getting back to sleep. I've heard the theories on, hey, do something till you get tired. You know, don't just don't sit there wakeful in, in bed, read a book. Um, but um, so, yeah, you, you're hearing different things. The reason I say something different than that, because I agree with that concept that distracting yourself might allow you to go back to sleep faster. However, if you're not distracting yourself completely with your book, and let's face it, you're putting light in your eyes if you're reading a book, you're putting light in your eyes if you're watching television, you wouldn't be putting light in your eyes if you say put on an audio book or something. That would be my last resort uh, to distract myself. But if you aren't completely distracting yourself, you're thinking about things that are stressing you out. And the reason sleep, uh, sleep physicians tell you to get out of bed and go do something else is because they're trying to avoid the most common form of insomnia is what we call psychophysiologic insomnia, which means you can't sleep because you're worried about not being able to sleep. Now, in order for you to be worried about not being able to get sleep, you have to have some awareness of how much you've slept. And you have to have some awareness of how much time you have left to sleep. And as soon as you know those two things, you're going to start increasing your stress hormones because you're going to know, oh, I've only slept this much. And now if I, even if I fell back to sleep in the next 30 minutes, I'm only going to get this much sleep. So that, and then you're waking yourself up. And if you're reading a book, you're, you're, you could be doing the same thing. You could be distracted every now and then a sentence, a word in there reminds you of that one thing on your list you wanted to worry about. And now you're thinking about that. I just say, look, there's a good chance you're not going to get enough sleep period full stop. There's like, there's just a, there's a really reasonable chance, almost a certainty at the beginning of this, you're just not going to get enough sleep. But if we can essentially get you into a meditative state, right? A stress, a lowered stress, a lowered sympathetic tone, right? That's the whole idea of the breathing exercise and progressive muscle relaxation and meditation. All of that is creating autonomic balance. If we can create autonomic balance and have you relaxed and decrease your stress hormones for a long, you know, for a significant period of time and add sleep to that, that's much better than just getting sleep and some wakefulness reading a book or something like that. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's great, uh, Kirk. Um, what about, so two questions, I'm, I'm just busting this out because I don't want to forget. One, in terms of how long you need to sleep for, like we should, we should rush on that. And then second, what about like in terms of where you, you know, like one of my biggest fears is like, say my alarm is going to go off at 6.30. It is 5.45. In my mind, if I fall asleep again and I'm, I somehow get myself into deep sleep and then I wake up at six 30. I'm in that, like, I don't know what the term is like morning inertia. I feel like shit for the first 30, 30 minutes or hour of my day or whatever. Yeah. So um, what do you suggest in terms of like how to manage that? Like not to think about it or just. Um, so, so there's, approach? There, there's, there's two, two reasons why that's not a factor. One if you follow my advice, you won't know it's 545. <laughs> and you, you're just going to say, hey, it's time to go back to sleep because my alarm clock hasn't gone off yet. Now, let's say it is 45 minutes and you get well into a deep sleep cycle. And you'll remember, you'll remember that if, uh, if, if you've slept all night and we've, you know, we're, multiple, we're four or five sleep stages into this, you're most likely going into a REM cycle, right? But you could... Theoretically, and you and you know it, it it happens. Like you can, you could fall asleep and wake up in a slow wave, non-REM, deep sleep situation. Which, as I just told you, as we've talked about many times on on this already, is the lowest stress hormones you're ever going to have. You're because you're in deep sleep, and now the alarm clock goes off. Well, what wakes you up if you don't have an alarm clock? Stress hormones, right? Your cortisol is what wakes you up. Your cortisol gradually gets higher through the night. After you've repaired, your body's like, okay, we can start waking back up. We've done our anabolic activities. And so now the cortisol is high enough to wake you up. If you don't have an alarm clock, you just hit this peak of cortisol. That's enough for you to be like, yep, time to be awake. Actually, cortisol's job is to make you alert and awake in proportion to your environment. If you're in a really stressful environment, you're super alert and awake. You're super with it. You're super focused. If you're in a calm, sedate, lazy environment, you're not, right? Your stress hormones are way lower. 
So if you wake up in a deep sleep cycle, yeah, you're going to wake up feeling tired because you don't have a lot of stress hormones to spike you up. But guess what? What are we trying to prevent? We're trying to prevent you having excess stress hormones during the day because that's catabolic. So, okay, you have to get over a little bit of inertia and a little bit of fogginess until your stress, until your stress hormones get back up to the appropriate level to make you feel awake for that day in the environment that you're in. But you've still done yourself a favor because you've done net, you've done some net anabolic gain to that and some net anabolic and some net catabolic loss. So you're, you've repaired more. You're just going to like your experience of how that morning starts is going to be a little different, but overall you're, you're going to be better that day because you did it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and you alluded to the four or five cycles, like how much, how much sleep do we need? Or once again, cause once again, you'll hear people say, Hey man, I'm a four hour guy. Yeah. And we, we talked about the science, why that, could be horse manure. Yeah. So, um, so what, what I've seen in the literature, um, and I, I got in a really embarrassing, unfortunate, uh, LinkedIn argument on this a couple of years ago, uh, cause I've always said seven and a half hours plus or minus half an hour. And I know I got that from some really credible source and, uh, and, and some, uh, sleep scientists, I, I think on, in the East coast, on the East coast somewhere, uh, um, you know, he wasn't even being argumentative. I was just being a dick and I, I got argumentative with him, but uh, he's like, well, this is the key research that I know. And then I read that started arguing with him. But uh, when I went back and reviewed everything, I was like, you know, I don't know where, I actually don't know where I got that from. I, I swear I got it from a credible source. I couldn't find the source. So, but I read his article and all the associated, all the reference articles and that one and all the ones that that one referenced. And after reading for a couple of weeks, it's like, all right, I'm, I'm a jerk. I apologize. The guy like it's, it's, it's 8.2 hours. Uh, that's, that's been shown for adults. Uh, that's been shown categorically to be the average. There is about a plus or minus 30 minutes to that. Um, but the, what you'll hear, especially from the educated crowd who uh, reads about epigenetics and genetics and they'll say like, Hey, there, there are these genetic super sleepers, man. And they have this gene, which turns this, uh, which turns this clock off and does this to this clock. And so they don't, they don't need as much sleep. That's not true. What the research shows is that everybody does, everybody's performance declines with a lack of sleep. So you're, we'll just call that suffering. You may be suffering physically, emotionally, intellectually, cognitively, whatever, but you're, we'll just say decreased performance. You're suffering to some degree. Your, your performance is suffering if you don't get enough sleep. The, the more nights in a row you don't get enough sleep, obviously, the more diminished you are in performance. And in fact, uh, 11 nights in a row of six hours of sleep is on par with not sleeping for 24 hours. Uh, 20 nights in a row with six hours of sleep is on par with not sleeping for two days for being awake. 48 hours. And we as doctors know what that's like, and you know how bad your performance sucks, but you'll think your performance is just fine uh, because you're sleeping six hours a night. You do that for three weeks and you feel like you're doing great. You're performing, your performance is worse than somebody who is at a, a 0.1 blood alcohol level. Um, so the argument that there's a super sleepers is true. What it shows is that they don't, diminish as quickly as the rest of us. They don't suffer as badly, but there is no research to show that anybody performs their best on less than approximately eight hours of sleep. Yeah, so what, what we read in the literature is, is pretty consistent. Yeah. Um, so can you catch up on sleep? Cause one of the theories I read about, I read this book, um, sleep, I think it's called. And one of the theories that, that I, I, came across was that you know when you're when you're catching up on sleep or where you're more sleep deprived you, you will have more uh your your cycles will be longer in deep sleep almost as a way of quote-unquote recovery any theories on that yeah so the original studies on this is uh so what the the term that sleep scientists use on that is sleep debt um, and for a long time it was called sleep debt and it was analogous to credit card debt. And it was basically saying 
just like credit card debt, you want to pay that off as fast as you can. Like you're always going to be diminished. Your financial situation is always going to be worse as long as you have that credit card debt. So pay that debt off as quickly as possible. Now, you know, there, you know, like Matt Walker's book on sleep, if you're familiar with him, uh, I think he's a brilliant guy. I loved his book. Uh, he, he strongly argues against the idea of, of uh, repairing sleep debt. Uh, however, he's making, he's making that case on a longevity base. Uh, uh, so I, what I would say, I, so I agree with, I agree with him the way he presents it, but the original, let me talk around this a little bit. Uh, the original studies on this was, uh, William Dement, the, he's the, he's the grandfather of sleep medicine. Um, and they started this, something called the bunker trials where they took college kids and they put them in these bunkers, right? These pill bunkers. And they're, they're in a cold, dark room with no light, nothing to do, nothing but a bed. And they locked them in that room for 14 hours a day. They let them out for 10 hours a day, locked them back in for 14 hours a day, let them out for 10 hours a day. And they did this, um, I don't know, six weeks or something like that in summer. And they paid these college and it's all college kids because who else could afford that time and to do it for so little money. But what they found is that the average person slept about 12 and a half hours because they didn't have a clock. They didn't have a watch. They had no idea what time it is. They had no idea if they were, somebody was about to open the door and let them out or if they, if they just closed the door 30 minutes before. They don't know. Lose all track of time. They sleep about 12 and a half hours a day. Over the course of about a month, everybody got down to where they were sleeping about eight hours a night. And the justification for saying that they've paid back a sleep debt is because you could then at that point teach them a skill or test them on something that they already had skill on and their performance would be the best after they had adjusted to multiple nights of this eight hours of sleep. So if you tested them while they were still sleeping 12 and a half hours, they didn't perform as well as if, they were, if they had slept for eight and a half hours because they had already been through that sleep recovery, paying back that sleep debt. So that's the argument for the sleep debt. It's definitely improving your performance. And if you look at simple metrics, like if you, if you get inadequate sleep, if you, if you short sleep one night, you lose about 30% of your testosterone. Most people associate testosterone with being a male thing. It's not obviously it, yeah. the dominant sex hormone in men and women is testosterone. Just women have less testosterone than men, but it's they women still have 10 times more testosterone than they do estrogen. Just men have 10 times more testosterone than women, but we, it's still the dominant sex hormone for both, right? It's still one of the primary drivers for anabolic behavior. Same thing with growth hormone, which we measure through the IGF one, right? So that decreases. So you decrease your, your testosterone with a single night of short sleep. You decrease it about 30%. You decrease your insulin sensitivity in certain tissues by about 30%. You decrease your growth hormone by about 30%. You decrease your problem solving skills by about 30%. You increase your stress hormones by about 30%. So you're, you're losing about a third of your performance just by uh, being inadequately slept. And it turns out if you just sleep eight hours and then get up the next day after you've been sleep depriving yourself for months or years, you don't bounce back to 100% because you slept one hour or because you slept one night of eight hours. You bounce back to 100% after you've been through that sleep debt re repair. And so the only, the way that I've seen my clients, and again, my, I, my program is a year long. So I, I had the benefit of working through this because it takes a long time. Most people can't just like take a month off and focus on sleep. Um, so it takes a long time for people to pay back their sleep debt. But what happens is like once they pay back their sleep debt, a ton of the things that I would have tried to optimize on their sort of lab markers and metrics and imaging, that stuff optimizes itself. But it doesn't do it just after sleeping a few nights well. It does it after you've slept a lot of nights well. And, my, and I get my clients to keep backing up their bedtime until they wake up when their alarm is going to go off every day. Anyway, like they're, they're always awake. They, they're always awake when their alarm clock goes off, but not by a huge margin, you know? Yeah. So like to, to recover, like to really to get that sleep debt uh, repaid, it's with time, not just one night. Um, and 
So just out of curiosity, like what's your, what time do you go to bed? What time do you wake up? Unfortunately, I'm a pretty long sleeper. Um, I, I need about nine hours of sleep, uh, nine and a half hours. If I've had a specific, uh, particularly doing some, you know, if I'm doing more jujitsu or more weightlifting or whatever, like I've broken down my body, my, my physical performance seems to be more tied to sleeping longer than just exhausting myself mentally. Although that does make me need a little more sleep too, but I'm about a nine hour a night kind of dude. Um, I'm usually in bed by eight 30, uh, you know, but I'm 50. I can get away with that. I got the excuse. <laughs> uh, I'm wow. usually in bed by eight 30, uh, sleep by nine, waking up right around six, you know, kind of half an hour foot factor. But it, you know, another thing that I tell people to try to settle them down is nobody, nobody wants to think about making some huge life altering change and, and the rigors of having to stick with that. Uh, so what I tell people is a lot like fitness, right? If you're really out of shape, if you haven't been, if you haven't focused on fitness in 20 years and you're 30, 40 pounds overweight, uh, and you need to change your diet, you need to change your activity levels. You need to be really, really, uh, consistent, right? You need to be really disciplined. You need to be really honest with measuring yourself and keeping your, holding yourself accountable. And you know, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be rigorous. But once you've lost that 30 pounds and gotten into and gotten into pretty good shape, you can you can maintain that right by just generally, uh, you know, generally adhering to the same processes that got you there. But you don't need to be so regimented about it anymore. And so once once you get to once you get to be a really good sleeper and really consistently good at at sleep, you know, like I I I stay up late sometimes. Like you know, something there's some external driver for me needing to stay up late. Like, you know, whatever, uh, I, I, this isn't a religion. Like we're just trying to do the best we can and, and be as close to optimal as we can. Um, but you know, you'll, you'll find your sweet spot. And basically if you can fall asleep about the same time every day and wake up about the same time every day, whether that's eight hours or whether I'd say probably if that's between seven and a half and 10 hours, that's just that's what it is, man. That's cool. And that's who that's you're going to cool. be. I like, I like it. I like it. So what is your opinion then on napping? Does that have any value in any of this sleep chat? And, um, and does it also ruin your ability to either, I would think maybe initiate sleep? Just your thoughts on that, Kirk. Yeah. Uh, so I would recommend to everybody who's a shift worker, um, anybody who's a first responder, any healthcare, any healthcare provider that, you know, probably any healthcare provider that's not on the road show, right? Like, um, anybody who needs, uh, who potentially needs naps to be healthy, right? So naps are great. Uh, there's a book, uh, called take a nap, ironically, <laughs> coincidentally, I don't know. Uh, and it's written by a woman named Sarah Mednick. Mednick, M-E-D-N-I-C-K, I think. Uh, she's a UCSD, UC San Diego uh, professor, and she it has this little wheel on it, and you, and she can and you can calculate what time you went by, what time you went to bed, what time you woke up, what time of the day you should take a nap, and for how long to increase what performance you want. So, naps will actually improve your performance, even if you're sleeping well, because as I told you when you wake up in the morning, if you've gotten adequate sleep, that's the most capable you're going to be at any point. Uh, that's the most capable your brain and body is like, it may not be the most awake as you alluded to, depending on how, how you woke up, but that's the most capable basic physiologically robust. You're going to be every hour that you're awake is diminishing, right? Like, that's not, it may not be exactly true. So you, your cortisol kind of peaks and there, you, you could be maybe slightly better performing in certain things towards the end of the day. But once you've been up for four to six hours, your performance actually starts decreasing, right? Because you're starting to deplete resources and you're, you're just getting tired, essentially. What we perceive as tired and, and cellular aspects that we don't perceive, but they're, they're happening. So there's like fatigue at a cellular level. Uh, and some of that's waste products, like we alluded to, the adenosine that can impair the prefrontal cortex and start affecting your ability to concentrate. That's what caffeine blocks adenosine. 
um, said, so anyway, what a nap will do is it will, it can restore some of that fatigue, right? It can replenish some of that stuff. It can give those cells, uh, give those processes a break or a chance to be anabolic for a minute and like try to recapture. So about a 20 minute nap, it re, uh, will restore your creativity, uh, and sort of think about like if you're a writer or if you're, you know, I don't know, podcaster, like you're trying, like you're, you're, you're just trying to do something somewhat, uh, you know, not knowledge based necessarily. You're sort of creating stuff. Um, this is the stories of like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and or Edison and all these guys who figured out ways to take little cat naps and then something they'd have a little trick to wake themselves up whenever they fell asleep and they'd wake up in this creative state and they'd, you know, they'd get past their problems or whatever. So about 20 minutes, uh, 20 to 45 minutes, we call that like that. That's the short nap that will, that will lead to a recovery of creativity and sort of just mental energy, sort of vigor. Um, you get into 45 minutes to 60 minutes, I think is, is maybe, maybe, yeah, 45 to 60, I think right around there. Um, you actually then improve executive functioning. Now you're going to wake up with better problem solving skills, not just creativity, but like ability to process what you're reading, your ability to synthesize information, your ability to, you know, process the spreadsheet that you're looking at or whatever complex thing you're looking at for you, like to chart your options medically and all that stuff, that decision-making matrix is going to be better. You're going to be better at that after a short nap or a medium nap. And then if you sleep, uh, past that, if you get like a, somewhere between an hour nap and, and a two hour nap, and we define a nap as being less than 120 minutes at 121 minutes, it becomes sleep uh, at 120 minutes. That's one sleep cycle. We don't think that like the research shows that's not going to affect your ability to sleep at night, but you would get all of the benefits that we just talked about sleep. You'd get all that anabolic activity. You'd get the flushing of the toxins. You'd get the REM, you'd get the creativity, you get the new neural connections between old information, wake up a little bit smarter with your body, a little more capable fuel sources kind of replenished a little bit. And now that happens even if you sleep well. Now, if you don't get enough sleep, that's a mandatory tool that you should be using to mitigate the damage that you're doing to yourself at night or with wow. every night with your inadequate sleep. There's nothing that I can say. There's nothing I can do. There's no drug. There's no nutrient. There's no activity that you can do. that's going to make it to where your inadequate sleep doesn't matter. Wow. Period. There's, yeah. there's nothing that can be done about that. Whether you're an insomniac, a shift worker, uh, somebody who's driven by whatever external factors to where they can't sleep or you take sleep drugs every night to sleep, which then we know doesn't really lead to sleep. So maybe you're, maybe you're sedated and dissociated for eight hours, but you're only getting really four hours worth of sleep, which would have been, you know, the, the same as if you didn't take anything and just let yourself sleep four hours. Um, it, so if you're in any of those categories, you die about 12 years earlier than your, than your counterparts, right? Then, wow. then your, you know, what would otherwise be your, your cohort. Um, and that's, that's just the truth. I mean, you, you see that in fire firefighters and, uh, you see that in, um, uh, you know, police department, all the first responders, uh, and chronic insomnia. So this research came out, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, scared people to death that if you took Z, I think this was actually the death knell for the Z drugs on top of the other problems they were having with dissociating people. There's some research came out that said, if you took sleep drugs chronically, which they defined as being over six months, you died on average 12 years earlier. Mm. Well, turns out that if you have chronic insomnia, you die 12 years earlier. If you're on shift work, you die 12 years. So it's, it, to me, it's all the same cause. It's just, it's all inadequate sleep. It doesn't matter why you're getting the inadequate sleep. Man, and I mean, we've said this before, but it's such, it's such, an efficient way of dealing with so many problems, whether it's uh, trying to, with your mental clarity, whether it's insulin sensitivity, whether it's uh, mental state, like uh, mood, so much is covered by if we could impact our sleep. And I, I think, and it's such an important point in terms of longevity, because I know this is a worry for our shift workers. Like I, I, when I, when it, 
you don't realize like Kirk, when people knew I was interviewing you, I got endless text messages and, and messages saying like, what are we going to do as shift workers? Like, what can we do to not only reduce our risk of, uh, of mortality, but how, how can we reduce the stress response, the, the uh, catabolic state that is associated with poor sleep? Because, you know, I, I think of our nurses two days on, two, two days, sorry, two, two day shifts, then two night shifts, and then five days off. Like, what can they do or any shift worker do to optimize sleep and, and reduce their risk? Man, I'm, I'm so compelled to launch into something that's going to take us another hour, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to eat up your time and, and uh, turn off all your listeners unless you want to break it into two. So that is the most common question I get, right? Um, Cause I lecture to a lot. I, I lecture, lecture to a lot of first responders, a lot of healthcare providers, uh, a lot of law enforcement, a lot of military, the, like these types of people, like, uh, you know, when I lecture professional athlete, you know, athletic clubs and stuff, they don't, they don't tend to ask this question today, but this is the most common question I get when, with this type of audience, they basically want to know what I do about shift work and what they want me to tell them is that two plus two doesn't equal four and two plus two is just always going to equal four. There's nothing I can do about that. Um, so it's always going to be bad for your health. So what I say is if you remember earlier, I said sleep's the foundation that the other three pillars are sitting on, right? The nutrition, the exercise and the stress mitigation. So you definitely need to do those, those, you definitely need to optimize those other three pillars because those are the other things holding up your health, right? That sleep's the foundation. So yeah, you're, you're always going to be suffering, to some degree, you're not going to reach your full potential and you're not, you're probably not going to have your full optimal life, um, by, by not getting adequate sleep for your whole life. Like, it, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's like, you know, if you, if you want to, if you want to drink a bottle of whiskey every night and ask me, how do, how do you mitigate against it? Well, I can tell you, there's some things you can do to like mitigate, but basically that's bad for your health and, the, and, and shift works bad for your health. So we can't get past that. So what we do is we optimize those other three pillars. The third pillar being the most important one, right? That stress mitigation piece. You need to become like, you know, the, the strong centered Buddhist monk of just like a zero stress, lowing, you know, low anxiety. I'm using that word interchangeably, although it's not even close to being interchangeable, but uh, you know, for layman's language, people know what I'm talking about with that. You need to decrease those stress hormones as much as you possibly can because that's sympathetic tone. And what is maximum sympathetic tone? Maximum sympathetic tone is fight or flight. What is fight or flight? 100% catabolic. What kills you? Catabolic behavior, right? What makes you age? Catabolic behavior, right? If you could repair 100% every night, you wouldn't age. You wake up the next day not quite a hundred percent. And that's what we call aging. When you're a kid, you actually wake up better. You're not aging. You're getting like, you, you're getting chronologically older, but physiologically you're getting stronger and more robust and building because you're getting all this anabolic behavior and kids are sleeping like 12, 14 hours and they're growing and they're And then at some point in our lives, you know, for myriad of reasons, we can't, we can't catch up a hundred percent over the night. But if we shortchange ourselves, we've decreased our ability to repair. And when we decrease our ability to repair, we're not we're more catabolic. We're not producing the hormones that are making us anabolic. We're not producing the protein structures that hold our skin up and prevent us from having wrinkles and, um, you know, maintain our muscle mass. Like you more than anybody know people in the ICU, one of the best predictors of whether you're going to make it through the ICU is how much muscle mass you have, right? Like how robust is this person? They can be super sick. If they have a ton of resources, you can probably get them through it. It's like when you're cachectic, when you have no muscle mass left, when all of your resources are depleted, now you hit the ICU, tough, tough position to be in, right? Like odds are drastically against you. You're it's stacked against you. So optimize those three pillars, focus super heavily on the stress. The problem with that is that focusing on your stress tends to stress people out. 
Um, so it, it's, it's something you have to be very careful about how you go about it, but, you know, get into some heart rate variability training, you know, get some breath, learn some breath work, learn some, you get into meditation. I don't care to meditative yoga, like figure out something that you can do on a regular basis that will help you decrease your stress hormones throughout the day. I'd say take phosphatidylserine during the day that decreases cortisol production. I'd take adrenal adaptogens like ashwagandha, take like some sort of, you know, ashwagandha, licorice root, the, the B vitamins, all those things tend to support adrenal function and prevent you from having sort of sporadic uh, adrenal pulses. Um, do everything you can to optimize that pillar, your nutrition and your your exercise or activity. I don't necessarily think that everybody needs to exercise in the way that we think about exercise as much as everybody just needs to be active to, to the right, you know, to the right proportion to where you're, you're pressing your physiology to not get worse and maybe get slightly better, but you aren't going so far that you're impairing your ability to recover that night and get through the next day. So that, you know, there's some individual, uh, stuff to that. Um, the other thing is once you are, once you are past, uh, when, once you've been awake for 16 to 18 hours, sleep, like sleep then. What a lot of shift workers will tell me is like, hey, I come home from my shift. That's the only time I have with my kids and my wife and whatever. So like I need to be, I stay awake for like six or eight hours and then I go in the back bedroom and then I sleep from here to here. I wake up at 8 PM, whatever. And I get on like, that's a choice you can make. But if from, if we're talking about from the sleep, from the sleep scientist re, research uh, standpoint, the healthiest thing that you can do, the thing that will mitigate the damage you're doing to your body every day there is to go to sleep as soon as you possibly can. Uh, if you just think about it, you've pushed yourself too far or you push yourself to your limit, just like you would have, if you'd, if you were sleeping adequately, you've pushed yourself to your physiologic limit to where you're actually, your performance is declining and you're, you're building up toxins. You could be building up right protein plaques and stuff in your brain, you're like things that aren't going, that aren't going to go away. You're building up sort of, uh, you know, there's really good reason to believe that, you know, uh, sleep deprivation enhances that, uh, arterial sclerosis, right? Atherosclerosis because you, you're higher oxidation, you're higher inflammation, right? Like it, these, these, everything fits this profile. Um, so you get to sleep as fast as you can. You sleep as much as you can. You get the highest quality of sleep that you possibly can. And then you nap whenever you can. You need to be as you need, uh, you need to realize that the number one thing in your life that is most likely to decrease the quality of your life and the length of your life is your lack of sleep. So you need to take it seriously. If you're, if you're choosing to, if you're, if you're choosing to accept that detriment to your life, mitigate it against it, mitigate against it by being completely serious about it and focusing and making it your number one priority it's like, I'm not going to quit smoking, so I'm going to do all these things that I can do that will help prevent me getting lung cancer or improve the, that, that's essentially what you're doing. So optimize every other area, sleep as quickly as you, sleep as soon as you possibly can, get the highest quality of sleep that you possibly can, nap as often as you can. That's about the best you can do. And, and take the... Uh, you know, one of those optimizing those pillars, like I said, decrease those stress hormones as much, decrease your catabolic state as much as you possibly can. That's, that's great. Cause I, I think people like one, it's, I appreciate you being absolutely frank about it. Like the fact that you're a shift worker, that's an issue period. Yeah. But you know, there's still an ability to take the power back, focus on stress mitigation, make sure you're moving, um, care about what you eat, I think that's gold. And also the, the idea having some guidance too of what you do when you get home. Cause I, I was a guy like after my shift, I'd go to the gym and mm -hmm. if, if there was ever a time where I was going to get hurt or pull a hammy or whatever, it was after that night shift or whatever, the 26 hours of, of being up, you know what I'm saying? So I, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of truth and wisdom in what you're saying, Kirk. Um, it's actually counterproductive to exercise if you're sleep deprived. 
Um, and that's very, it's a very unpopular thing to tell people, but that's why, that's why I, 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 I hedge and say activity, because if you're not, if you're only sleeping six hours a night, you shouldn't be exercising because you already aren't repairing. Right. Um, so now you're going to go hyper damage your tissues thinking that they're going to be anabolically repaired that night. You're going to be strong enough. You're just creating more damage and more work for your body to do and still giving it inadequate time to do it. So if you, if, and if you are going to exercise while being chronically sleep deprived, it, the, again, do it when you're the most robustly healthy you're going to be during the day, which is right after you wake up. Um, so that, that, that's, that's again, a very unpopular message, but I have like, um, a lot of my, you know, clients, they're like, say, uh, CEOs and, you know, high, you know, people who just live for their business and they're just going a million miles an hour at all times. And they, like, uh, they, they feel like they just have to fit this in because, you know, they're the do everything people and they have to fit in the exercise. I'm like, you don't need to exercise, man. You need to mow your own lawn. You need to wash your own car. You need to park your car three blocks from your office. You need to take the stairs instead of the elevator. You need to you know, take a walk, you know, pack your own lunch and take a walk during your lunch, you know, walk with your kids after dinner, walk, you know, walk your dog, you know, that type of stuff. That's just be active. That's going to get you healthy. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Cause it's also practical. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Kirk? Um, I'm cognizant of the time and I don't want to, I don't want to take too much of your time, but there's a couple outstanding things that uh, I'll let you choose which one you want to hit. Um, sleep aids. We talked on uh, blue blockers. There's melatonin. There's stuff that there's a product that, you, that you, your company produces. And the other part uh, that is a heavy hitter is the immunity impact of immunity. Cause I think in my opinion, a lot of lifestyle choices can be impacted right now in the heights of, of COVID. So um, I'm good to go. So whatever you want to talk about, I'm, I'm happy to. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk about any of that. Um, so yeah. So the quickly on the, on the supplements, I'm very clear when I talk about supplements and, um, and the reason I don't have like some hundred million dollar supplement business is because I'm a terrible salesman because uh, <laughs> I say supplements are supplemental. <laughs> That's why they're called supplements. You should be doing all the lifestyle modification you possibly can. Um, and then you supplement. So what I tell my clients is like, evaluate you for what you are, what assets you have and what your goals and aspirations are. And then from there, we can, we can figure out like what would be the ideal you and what would we need to do to get to the ideal. Now you can't do the ideal almost every time. Right. So like if the ideal sleep time was from here to here, like your job doesn't let you do that. Your kids, your schedule with your kids doesn't let you do that or like whatever. There's something that's, so there's ideal and then there's reality. And then in between there is where we supplement. And, and I consider supplement things like the blue blocking glasses. That's a supplement, right? Uh, the, you know, any, uh, the sleep ritual, that's a, that's a supplement to your, your lifestyle. Um, that's, that's a supplement to being in bed for the, you know, the extended, the extended amount of time. Like you need, well, the ritual itself isn't a supplement, but like the gadgets and so forth that you're using would be supplements. Um, and then nutritional supplements. So, as I said, the melatonin is like the starter pistol. That's actually Matt Walker's uh, metaphor that I stole. I, I really like that. Um, it's the starter pistol, the starter pistol that initiates all the cascades of events. And then I said one of the big players is GABA. GABA slows down that neocortex, right? So the thing is, um, as I said, it takes about three hours for all of that to happen once you take the blue light out of your eyes. And actually from the time the sun goes down to the time the sun comes up or you wake up in the morning, um, your brain only produces about six micrograms of melatonin. So if you take a big melatonin swath, yeah, you've initiated that cascade, but you've overdosed on it. Right. And then you, we run into issues like tachyphylaxis, right? So you, you have so much melatonin floating around that you start decreasing the receptor density of that hormone. And now if you quit taking that hormone, you don't have enough receptor density to get to sleep without having that exogenous hormone. So I think it's, I think it's very, 
non-productive to take that for an extended period of time. Now, if you want to take that as a sleep aid during jet lag or something like that, I'm totally cool. That makes like makes makes perfect sense to me. Um, and then uh, GABA can help. You know, GABA doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier super well. It does cross to some extent. So if you take high doses of GABA and you take L-theanine, which increases the efficacy of GABA uh, in the brain and on all its receptors. Um, and then phosphatidylserine to decrease your cortisol levels. Those are all sleep aids, right? So while this in my sleep product is the constituent ingredients for the pathway of melatonin production. So tryptophan, we all know about the turkey, tryptophan, right? Uh, tryptophan coma on Thanksgiving. Turkey doesn't have any more tryptophan than any other meats. Just nobody ever eats two pounds of steak. You know, people eat two pounds of turkey. So they get this tryptophan flushed. Tryptophan becomes 5-hydroxytryptophan with the help of vitamin D3 and magnesium as cofactors. 5-hydroxytryptophan will become serotonin. Serotonin then becomes melatonin. Now, you can see if you don't have enough melatonin, if you have a lot of stress hormones and your brain's still active and everything's trying to crank up and you need more and more melatonin, but you're lacking any of the constituent elements to make melatonin, you're now stripping out serotonin. And what, ha what do we call people with low serotonin? Depressed, right? So now, uh, and, and serotonin is a weight-promoting neurotransmitter, so you're, like, you're decreasing that, um, leading to issues during the day as well. So all this in, my, all this in mind is all the ingredients to make melatonin, a super, super light dusting of melatonin that would be what I perceive would be likely to be about the initiation dose of around you know, one to two micrograms of melatonin to start uh, things going in your brain. Some GABA, L-theanine to help the GABA work and some phosphatidylserine to decrease the cortisol. That's it. There's no, there's no tricks in there. There's nothing that's going to make you go to sleep. All that, all that I'm doing is I'm bringing in the nutritional supplementation. I, I use the metaphor. It's like it's a construction site and I'm bringing in the lumber and setting it down and walking off. Like you, that doesn't do anything to build the house. Like you have, you have to have the processes going to do the work. Um, and so, I mean, you, you could play around with all that stuff. Uh, you, uh, any one of those um, products on their own might improve your sleep. Uh, it might improve your sleep significantly. Like I, I started creating that with the SEAL teams with just, I started with vitamin D3. I thought I'd solved everything because that was kind of at the very beginning of everybody being aware of vitamin D3. And every single one of them that I tested were low on vitamin D3 because they work at night and they sleep during the day. And if they are outside in the day, they're covered from head to toe and camouflage and body armor and helmet and goggles and gloves and all this. I'm like, oh, I solved it, man. That's it. And, uh, of course, you know, that didn't quite work out. And so we keep, keep kept adding stuff. So that's what I have to say about supplements. Um, and then what was the other question? And then the, before that, what about weighted blankets and like eye covers and ear, ear, uh, um, yeah, so earplugs. So again, that's, so that's sleep environment. So, uh, as, as we, as I talked about earlier, um, the, the key to being asleep is your, is your neocortex not interacting with your environment. It's still sensing it. There's nothing you can do to prevent it from sensing it. It's just whether or not is your brain going to respond to that sensation. So the reason you don't sleep well, if you go to a hotel or sleep in a different city or go sleep in somebody else's house, the reason you don't sleep as well as you sleep at your own house is because things are different. The sensations are different and you can't turn it off as well because in order for us to be able to sleep, we have to have low stress hormones because we have to feel safe. And so if we feel safe and able to go to sleep and not vulnerable, then we sleep better. And so once you build your sleep environment to be ideal for you, then you sleep better. Um, so some people need earplugs because they live in an environment where there are random noises. Now, if you had, if you have, say, a hum of some sort, so like a good example, you know, when I, when I was, uh, when I was with the SEAL teams, we go on ships sometimes or submarines and things like that. And there's just something about like the gentle rocking of that ship and the hum of the whole ship kind of vibrates because the engines are so big. 
it's not really perceptible. Like you have to really sit, really, really think about it and concentrate on to, to be conscious of it, but just like that steady little hum. So that's noise. And some people live in an environment that has like routine, fairly loud noises, like train tracks going like, you know, subway cars and stuff rushing past their windows. Um, but these are predictable. And so you can get used to it and your, and your brain can get used to it. It can accommodate it. Now it's never going to be ideal. It's better to not have that sensory onslaught. But if you get used to that sensory onslaught, the less likely it is your body's going to wake up from it. Your brain's going to wake up from it. The reason you wake up is because of sensation. It's because of sensory. So uh, the reason an uncomfortable bed can make, there's, lot, there's lots of reasons, but say like when, when you lay down in your bed and you start sleeping, you, you know, obviously there's more pressure on certain parts of your body depending on how good the, the mattress is that depend, you know, like that changes how, how much pressure we're talking about. Like if you slept on a ground pad camping versus sleeping on your bed, you, you know where those pressure points are when you're camping, you know, damn good and well where all of them are and you feel them the rest of the day. Um, and all those pressure points exist in your bed. What happens is uh, two things. One is that spot gets really warm. And one of the, one of the physiologic cues or for being asleep is a lower body temperature. Um, and so you will search out a cooler part of the mattress by moving. Also, when you have a high pressure point, you're decreasing circulation. So just like a di- the beginning of a diabetic foot ulcer or something, you're decreasing the circulation. You're starting to get a little inflammatory response. You start to get a little nerve irritation in there. You're pooling up some blood and that, that your body's like, oh, that's uncomfortable. We're going to move. We're going to get rid of that pressure point. So that... That's two reasons. Another reason is if your mattress is too hard or really more often too soft and you get some sagging, you get a lot of joint compression and that joint compression will start leading to inflammation and then then that makes you move. But the interesting thing is there's research to show, research out of Stanford to show that every time you move, it takes you out of deep sleep. So you're in that deep sleep cycle and you have to move 20 times. That's fragmented 20 times. There's no way around that. So the more comfortable your bed is, that's the long winded way of get, getting to your question. The same thing could be true for sound. Same thing could be true for light, right? The darker, the colder, the more comfortable, the quieter your environment, the more consistent, the safer you feel in your little cubby hole that, that leads to the best sleep. The weighted blankets. I don't know the research on those things. They, they seem to work pretty well. Um, I was, I was sent one, uh, I, I did a review on it. It, it worked great. Um, I, I was a big fan of it. I, I could use it for napping. I can't use it for nighttime sleeping. My guess is that that's, that's actually dec- because that's a constant sort of pressure across your entire body. Now you have pressure on the top and you have pressure of the mattress beneath you. And maybe that's decreasing skin sense, you know, skin sensation. Like that's why we powder little kids and put them in comfortable pajamas. Right. When we do their bedtime routine, we put them in the bath and we drop their body temperature a little bit. Then we put them in these onesie snuggly things and you powder them all up. Well, that decreases all the skin sensation. Right. So now there's, that's less external uh, sensory to stimulate their brains. And so I, that's that's why I think the weighted blankets work. But I don't know. I haven't I haven't seen any research to, for the mechanism of action, how those things work. But it's basically a test, man. You you try it out. If you like, if it, if it, you think it makes you, if it, you think it makes you sleep better, then keep, keep using it. Amen. Amen. Listen, Kirk, this has been mind boggling. The knowledge that's been thrown down has been incredible. You, I, I, I could hear the voices of my colleagues of other healthcare professionals, general public about how valuable all this information is. So I want to thank you. Um, two things. You have to promise that you come back on. We're going to talk about immunity and we're going to talk about uh, life as a, like lessons as a seal. Cause I think this is right. stuff that applies to healthcare. Like you wouldn't believe. And second, yep. how can people get a, a hold of what you're doing? Oh uh, yeah. Just so my, my uh, URL is doc, you know, doc, short for doctor, doc parsley, parsley like the herb, P A R S L E Y, just docparsley.com. 
got blogs on there, links to videos. I mean, you can just, you can throw it in Google. I mean, I got YouTube videos, I got a Ted talk. I got some television appearances, podcasts, like all that stuff. I, I don't know. I've done a couple hundred podcasts, but somebody just taught me recently. You can just put my name in uh, Spotify and it, it'll pop up about a hundred, about a hundred different podcasts. Uh, so um, yeah, docparsley.com is the easiest way. Um, if you, I, I mean, if you send questions in through that, I, I obviously have a staff that, that screens it. So if it's a super routine question, you'll, you'll get uh, a, a routine answer to it. But if it's, uh, if it's something unique, then I'll, I'll usually respond to that myself. Amazing. Cook. Thank you so much. And I can't wait for us to connect again soon, my friend. Yeah, I look forward to it. We'll, we'll do it up. Quarkcast Nation, tell me that wasn't knowledge being thrown at your mind grapes all over the place, yo. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Leave us a five-star rating on wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook at Quadcast. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Check out our new shop, solvinghealthcare.ca backslash shop. And check out our conferences. Use promo code QUADCAST20. Get 20% off on those conferences. And uh, guys, thank you so much. Stay safe out there and uh, we'll connect again real soon. Peace.